Hi, this is Lori Anderson, and you're listening to Choosing Glory. Thanks for joining me today. We are talking about a really sad kind of historical ending to the Old Testament, although we still have a lot of material to cover. As we've mentioned before, the Old Testament is not strictly chronological. So here in 2 Kings chapter 17 to 25, we have a recap of the end of the nation of Israel. First, the northern kingdom, and then the southern kingdom. And then what will fall in the Old Testament is still a lot of tremendous material. Of course, we're going to have tremendous messianic prophecies that teach about Jesus Christ, about the Savior of the world, and give us beautiful words, beautiful insights, beautiful principles of the gospel as they talk about Jesus Christ, who is going to come and be the Redeemer of the world. So there's all that wonderful content coming from prophet after prophet. And then we also have, you know, the Psalms, which were kind of the hymn book of the Old Testament, we say, or the Proverbs, I mean, wise sayings that had come from various leaders and prophets. We have some repetitive material. We also have a lot of detail. So when I say repetitive, I mean that, you know, we're going to talk about the Babylonian conquest of the Southern Kingdom, but we then have detail about some of those who were taken captive into Babylon, like Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And then we also have some additional information about what happens when some of Israel returns to the Holy Land or to Palestine, that place that had been promised to Abraham for his seed. So we have a lot of, of really you know, great material to come, so don't give up on your study of the Old Testament because it would be sad to miss so many of these things that are still to come. But this does kind of wrap up the you know, trajectory of what happens after the Israelites are taken and freed from slavery in Egypt under the hand of the prophet Moses, and they have this great opportunity to become a Zion people, but they reject it, march for 40 years in the wilderness, then their children reject it too and never are able to fully possess the land of Canaan because they're not righteous enough and they go worshiping after these other gods. And then, you know, we have seen this continue, the constant invitations of the prophets for the people to repent and to worship one God only. Certainly that big contest between Elijah and the priests of Baal, you know, no contest. (laughs) There's actually no contest when you're going up against the powers of heaven. And nevertheless, the people still, not converted by signs, because signs really don't convert, but they can open a door for people who have softer hearts or don't have the stiff necks and the pride that we are so often warned against. So at any rate, you know, what we're generally seeing in these chapters, I hope you've had a chance to study them or will study them. We see that the Northern Kingdom has one wicked king after another. And not only do they allow the people to participate in all kinds of false worship, not just false, but evil, licentious, depraved practices in worshiping these stone idols, but they even encourage it. They they build temples or altars themselves to these false gods that encourage such terrible practices in their supposed worship. So that pretty speedily comes to an end in the northern kingdom with the coming of the Assyrians from the north that come and take those 10 tribes of Israel captive and take them into the north. Now, we've talked about this earlier when we have looked at some of the prophecies of of Joseph of, of Egypt, who saw that his descendants would reject God and reject the idea of repenting and, and becoming holy so um, that they would be lost for a long period of time, scattered amongst the nations. This is, we've, we've talked about this word diaspora or diaspora, D-I-A-S-P-O-R-A, which is the scattering of Israel throughout the nations. And uh, great suffering that came from that to the Israelites. They've been a hiss and a byword in so many countries over so many centuries. And it's happening again as anti-Semitic feelings seem to again have space in our Culture, I mean, it never really went away worldwide, but um, even in so-called enlightened countries in the more Western part of the world where there was at least enough shame after World War II that people were pretty pro-Israel or tried to be more protective against anti-Semitism, and that has diminished lately, which is really tragic to see. 
So Joseph saw all that, and he saw the ending of the southern kingdom as well. The southern kingdom, as we've mentioned before, had at least two righteous kings that are mentioned in the lesson, and they did invite the people to repent. And so it, it actually kind of prolonged the southern kingdom a little bit longer than the northern kingdom lasted. King Hezekiah actually is reigning in the southern kingdom when the Assyrians capture the northern tribes, and they almost conquered the southern kingdom as well. But because Hezekiah is a righteous king, he asks for help from the Lord and deserves it. So Jerusalem is miraculously saved from conquest at that time that the northern tribes are taken captive. They last about 135 years longer than the northern kingdom. There's another king, Josiah, who is a a righteous man and invites Israel to repent. And this prolongs, as I said, the, the days of the southern kingdom. The northern kingdom, of course, taken captive at what we consider about 721 BC, and the southern kingdom at about 586 BC, about 135 years later again. So it's a tragic story. It's a tragic story of people who had every opportunity to become another city of Enoch, a whole nation that would have been a Zion nation that could have been blessed, prospered, their children could have grown up with truth and light and opportunity. But instead, they reject this again and again, with some exceptions. There are some people who choose righteously for a while, but that number diminishes dramatically. And at a certain point, then the prophecies and the warnings are all fulfilled. So what I'd like to talk about today is really, why didn't the Israelites repent? And more relevantly, perhaps, what stops people now from repenting? What stops us from repenting if we have a need to repent? And how can we help our children be soft-hearted and and humble enough to repent when they need to repent and understand how important this is? Uh, Remember, you know, we just studied the DNC last year. And what was a continuous message, especially early through the DNC? But remember how many people who were sent on missions to teach the gospel were told, say nothing but repentance to this generation. That was repeated again and again, say nothing but repentance. Well, that's what was said to the Israelites as well. Repentance was repeated again and again by their prophets. So why why is it so hard when this is the message that is front and center in the gospel of Jesus Christ again and again? Or, or is it? You know, hopefully it is, particularly if we understand that the best synonym for repentance is really change. There's sort of two levels of repentance that kind of get us from the celestial to the terrestrial and the terrestrial then to the celestial, right? So what gets us from the celestial lifestyle or, you know, law to the terrestrial is repenting from sins of omission to a large extent, right? Because at the celestial level, we are actively allowing the natural man to govern ourselves. So we're choosing the natural man over choosing the glory of of the terrestrial. We're allowing our appetites of our flesh to overcome the light and truth or the light of Christ that every person is born with. And if we don't follow that light to improve our lives and control our natural man, then we are choosing behaviors that make us offensive to God. So any of these sins that that are mentioned in the scriptures continuously, you know, the things that we know we should not do, start starting with the basic Ten Commandments, but continuing to all the commandments of God. And when we rebel and break those commandments, that puts us in a celestial realm. So certainly, if we want more than the outcome of a celestial kingdom, a celestial resurrection and a celestial kingdom, then we need to repent of those sins. But that's just the beginning, because if we desire to have what God really offers us, which is life in the celestial kingdom, and hopefully even life in the top level of the celestial kingdom, if that's what we desire, then there is... There's more change to come. And our repentance at that point, I mean, it's still repentance, but it's not so much because, oh, I was rebellious and I knew better, but I did this sin anyway. But it becomes, you know, what lack I yet? And how can I hunger and thirst after righteousness and become more holy? Again, this beautiful hymn we have in the hymn book, More Holiness Give Me, is a great review of just some of the things that we can do to become more holy, more like Jesus Christ. 
and that helps us choose celestial glory. So to choose terrestrial glory, we have to stop our sins of commission because those things are offensive to the spirit and they are choosing the natural man over the glory of, of a better life in the terrestrial kingdom. But to choose the celestial, we, we really need to go further than that and continue to change and grow and become. Elder Oaks had a really great message in October of 2000 in a speech called The Challenge to Become. And in that speech, lots of great things, but this one was something that Elder Oaks shared with us. We conclude that the final judgment is not just an evaluation of a sum total of good and evil acts, what we have done. It is an acknowledgement of the final effect of our acts and thoughts, what we have become. It is not enough for anyone just to go through the motions. The commandments, ordinances, and covenants of the gospel are not a list of deposits required to be made in some heavenly account. The gospel of Jesus Christ is a plan that shows us how to become what our Heavenly Father desires us to become. That's really a great statement. I love it. I have it on slides that I have used in PowerPoint presentations sometimes because I think it captures something so important here that, yes, you know, we need to be pretty scrupulous about removing sin from our lives. God understands our strengths and our weaknesses. He has an amazing and perfect patience, but He does tell us that We need to have clean hands and a pure heart in order to enter his presence, and that sin prevents that. So he wants that dedicated and committed effort to remove sin from our lives, which requires repentance, and that helps us choose the terrestrial. But further than that, it's what have we become? Not just, you know, a point system of of like, well, I've got this many demerits, but I made this many points up in my service or sacrifice, whatever, so that somehow it comes out with a positive total at the end. No, it's it's what have I become? Have I become more like Jesus Christ by hungering and thirsting after righteousness? And and not just eliminating sins of commission, but but really working to eliminate those sins of omission and and challenge ourselves through the gift of the Holy Ghost to become changed. That is you know, that higher level of repentance, to continue in this process of change, not just from sinner to non-sinner, but from non-sinner to holy, to becoming like the Savior Jesus Christ. So I'm actually going to take the time to read the lyrics of this beautiful hymn, More Holiness Give Me, because I, I hope we'll take a moment as we're hearing these lyrics and think about some of these areas where we can more completely choose a celestial way and choose glory. Hymn 131, more holiness give me, more strivings within. That's that hungering and thirsting after righteousness, right? Those strivings. More patience in suffering. We've talked a lot about that, why bad things happen to good people and how we can understand and reframe that in a way that allows us not to become bitter or, or resentful when there are hard things in our lives, but to see it as an opportunity that God is giving us to become something more holy. So more patience in the things that are meant to refine us and purify us from our weaknesses and imperfections. More sorrow for sin. That's a big one. You know, brothers and sisters, as a counselor, I see a lot of people who who come in with a little bit of a lukewarm repentance. I mean, they want to repent and they see real benefits to becoming a better person at some level. But they also are a little, what's the word I want to use? I mean, they're holding back a little bit. They're kind of like, well, I don't think it was that bad. Or, you know, I there are a lot of people who are worse. Or I could have done this and I didn't. So there's a mitigation of their sorrow. Like they're they're kind of watering down the sorrow by finding excuses. The classic rationalization that we all know about where where we, you know, keep excusing ourselves or becoming defensive about the things that that we should just own up to. So a lot of this has to do with with uh, dropping our defensiveness and becoming fully humble because defensiveness and pride are very related, right? We'll talk a little bit more about pride later, but this idea of just like owning it. One of my sons told me about a book and I and I read a lot of it. I didn't get to finish it, but it was called Extreme Ownership. And it's about a military guy who just, you know, gives an example about how, like, when you're in charge, and he was one of the special forces, I I don't know if he was a Navy SEAL, I forget, but he, 
you know, talked about missions where if something goes wrong, instead of blaming people, the the only real solution is to say, like, I was in charge, so I own that. And I will, you know, look at the things that need to change, even if it was because somebody messed up below them. They took ownership. Now, God does not hold us accountable for other people's sins, so let me not be misunderstood here. But this idea of extreme ownership really makes a difference where we stop all that business about hedging our sorrow and thinking, well, you know, it wasn't that bad a sin or it was somebody else's fault or I wouldn't have done it if this hadn't have happened. And we just own it. We just go to the level of saying like, I'm just going to own that and I'm going to take responsibility for changing myself through the grace of Christ, through the atonement of Jesus Christ, I can and he will help me. And the Holy Ghost will will make that a lasting change if I seek that sanctifying path of change and repentance. So more sorrow for sin is actually a huge concept. Gosh, this is going to take a while if I'm going to comment on every phrase, huh? (laughs) But going on, more faith in my Savior. So much of this comes to faith, right? More sense of his care, more gratitude, more understanding of how much he loves us. I've talked about trying to find his love in our day-to-day life and recognize that the love that is shown to us, that it's available to us if we have our receptors polished off and the eyes to see and the ears to hear and the heart to understand. More joy in his service. Beautiful. More purpose in prayer. Next verse, more gratitude give me, more trust in the Lord. We spent a lot of time talking about trust not, not too many weeks ago and how important that trust is in moving us forward toward choosing glory. More pride in his glory. There's where pride is. That's where it belongs. It's not our pride. It's his. More pride in him. More grateful that he is our God, that we have this amazing deity to worship who is perfection, love, mercy, justice, all of it at perfect levels. More pride in his glory, more hope in his word, more tears for his sorrows. We've talked about that beautiful question, how many drops were shed for me? More tears for his sorrows, more pain at his grief, more meekness in trial, more praise for relief. Last verse, more purity give me, more strength to overcome, more freedom from earth stains, more longing for home, more fit for the kingdom, more used would I be, more blessed and holy, more savior like thee. These are tremendous words. Anytime we want to look at some area or or remind ourselves of where we can continue to grow or become or change or repent, you know, this is a great hymn to review. The scriptures are full of these admonitions. Here's a nice summary. It's not a comprehensive list, but covers a lot of beautiful things that we can we can continue to repent in and change. Okay, so you know, we've talked about saying nothing but repentance to this generation and how important that is because this in some ways, is how we can distill the plan. That the plan, of course, Christ in his own words tells Moses in in chapter 1, verse 39, that this is my work and glory to bring to pass the immortality and eternal life of man. This is the plan, to bring to pass our immortality and eternal life. Of course, Christ himself had to resurrect from the grave in order to give us immortality. And this is a free gift everyone will resurrect. Everyone who has lived on this planet will resurrect. Their body and spirit will be united in a permanent way. Even if we've been in the grave for a long time, or if it happens during the millennium in a twinkling of an eye, there will be a permanent joining of the spirit with the flesh. This is a gift of the atonement of Jesus Christ because he broke the bands of death. An incredibly generous gift that has been done. It doesn't need to be done anymore. It is done. It's accomplished. But eternal life requires something from the recipient. How much are we willing to receive eternal life? And what portion of of everlasting life, whether it's celestial life or a terrestrial life or a celestial life or even exaltation in the highest level of the celestial life and glory, which which level are we choosing to receive? That is not something that happens unconditionally for everybody. It is absolutely conditioned on our willingness to repent, which again is why repentance is so key. 
So are we teaching this to our children? Are we remembering ourselves how important it is to change from imperfect to ready to be perfected in Christ? We're not going to, you know, create perfection in our lives, but we can qualify for it. So are we ready to allow for that great gift of perfection through the atonement of Christ after we have done all we can do, which is repent and continuing to repent? In a book by Marion G. Romney that I read when I was an undergrad, trying to remember the name of it, it's probably still on my shelf somewhere, but at any rate, great book by President Marion G. Romney. He's mentioned that to him, at later in his life, anyways, he's writing this book and, and was serving in the First Presidency, that perfection seemed to be being in a constant state of repentance. I think I've mentioned this before, but let's just review this thought for a minute, that it's not that he was committing great sins of commission and had to repent in that way. But he was talking about the constant need to become more holy and the constant awareness that he was not finished. I don't remember where I heard this, but probably in some movie somewhere, somebody, some character says, when you're, when you're finished changing, you're finished. And I really believe that. I believe that that, that is what the Spirit tells us that we need to continue to seek a higher level of becoming that President Oaks was talking about, that higher level of, of becoming more like the Savior, more qualified for the kingdom as we humbly look at our lives and continue to change, continue to ask that essential question, what lack I yet? So this is a huge part of the plan. So I think that it's a lack of understanding the plan that can often lead to a failure to repent. So are we teaching the plan to our children? Are we teaching it to our youth in church when we have callings? Are we reminding people of this in, in our callings? Not in a harsh, you know, everybody's going to hell kind of way. Although if we don't repent, we do have to spend time in hell, as we've discussed, because we have to pay the price of our own sins and balance the scales of justice ourselves if we don't allow Christ to do that through repenting. Nevertheless, it's not about this harsh message. It's a good news message that we can repent, we can change, we can be free of hell if we accept this great gift that Christ offers by repenting. That is the gift that he offers conditionally to the repentant. Do our young people understand this? Or are they being seduced by the philosophies of men mingled with scripture? Or flat out the, the words of the adversary that are coming through in messaging more and more in this world? So are we combating those false ideas that we don't need to repent, that we're fine the way we are, with our children or in our callings, in our own minds, are we are we recognizing that? Now, again, there's this beautiful balance that um, Harold B. Lee used to quote, the gospel of Jesus Christ is to comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable. What a great statement of balance, <laughs> to comfort the afflicted, meaning that, you know, if somebody feels like, well, I'll never be good enough, I can't be saved, and I'm always going to be a sinner, then we're not paying attention to the good news message, which is that Christ is mighty to save that he has infinite power to save us if we turn to him and do all we can do. Now, we have to do all we can do because mercy can't rob justice. We've been repeatedly taught Christ can't save us in our sins. If we fail to repent and stay in our sins, he can't save us. But he can save us from our sins if we are willing to make the effort to leave those sins behind. And he will help us on that journey. Where we are weak, he is strong. So if we turn to him, include him, use the path that he has taught us, we can be free of sin, and then we can be saved from our sins forever. But are we getting this message across that comforts the afflicted? You know, over the years, I've had people sit in my office and say, you know, I, I'm afraid I might have committed the unforgivable sin. And that always makes me so sad. I mean, they say it earnestly. Maybe they have done some things that are very serious and do require a lot of work to take care of with a bishop. Nevertheless, that's why this path exists, because we can be forgiven of our sins. The only unforgivable sin is the denial of the Holy Ghost, which is basically like denying the existence of the sun while we are basking in the rays of the sun. 
Or another way of putting it is once we have been sanctified by the Holy Ghost and we have a knowledge more sure than sight, more sure than the senses, that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, that he lives, that he's our Savior, then we throw him under the bus and deny him for personal gain, for fame or money or power, which, you know, as a bargain, I never really understood I, I don't understand. I hope I never do. But these people who come in and they're so worried that, that they don't have the ability to be forgiven. And I'm like, no. As I used to tell my seminary students, the good news is most of us aren't even eligible for being sons of perdition or having committed the unforgivable sin because we don't have that sanctifying knowledge of the Holy Ghost yet. So without that, you're not even eligible to be that bad because you're not good enough. But the bad news is that most of us are not eligible to deny Christ because we haven't completed that path toward sanctification. So good news, bad news. Again, comfort the afflicted, afflict the comfortable. If we are not firmly on that path toward sanctification, let's let's get a move on. Let's kind of kick ourselves in the rear and say, like, I need to be on this path. And yes, then we're not going to be that foolish. Very few will ever betray the Savior once they have reached that level for gain. It's a very, very small proportion of people who would ever do that. We don't need to worry about that. What we need to to do is have hope in Christ that he can help us repent and that we are far from having committed unforgivable sins, that the Lord is waiting to receive us with open arms. He embraces the prodigal. That's us. We're all the prodigal. There's only one older brother. It's Christ. And he is always ready with his arms extended all the day long for us to come unto him where he can Save us from our sins as we repent and heal us from all our wounds. So I think that it's so important that we go back over the plan of salvation. Many times in our family home evenings, we would kind of rotate the kids at intervals. So it wasn't just one week after the other, but we would ask different children to present the plan of salvation in a lesson to the rest of the family. And that was a really great exercise because we could see where maybe there were some Still, some things for them to learn as they were presenting, they could kind of see where their gaps might have been in in full understanding or just add to their understanding. And then we could discuss it again with all the kids and the entire family had a great review. And we got, you know, deeper and deeper into what the plan means and and how to understand it completely as we studied together. So it's really essential that we study the plan of salvation. I can't give you a source on this, but I remember hearing Boyd K. Packer say once, that we should basically start every class that we're teaching in church curriculum with a review of the plan of salvation. And so as a seminary teacher, I did that. You know, we wanted to catch up and stay current with the curriculum, but I did take time in those first weeks to review the plan of salvation for the kids in my class every year. I've done that as gospel doctrine teacher. I've done that as a relief society. Anyway, I've done that in lots of different callings when I'm teaching to try to make sure we have this this review of the plan, this paradigm of the plans front and center in our thinking, because understanding the plan really answers so many of the questions as to why we should repent, why we should try to be good, why we should come to Christ and be saved. And if we don't have that understanding, we we can be so lost. I've mentioned that my parents did kind of an informal study by talking to many ministers, priests, you know, various religions, pastors, and so on, when we lived in Indiana, and they asked them, what their conception was of any plan that the Father had, that our Heavenly Father had for His children. Like, why are we here? You know, where did we come from? Why are we here? Where are we going? Those basic questions that the plan answers so beautifully and so completely. And they really didn't have anything coherent or or motivating or complete. And one of the ministers, I'll never forget this, my, our parents told us about this, it said, well, it's kind of like a fire when you have a big bonfire and sometimes you throw a log on the fire, but there were ants in the log and they kind of scramble around because the as the fire starts to burn the log, you know, they're in danger. And then this sort of benevolent hand might extend a stick for the ants to crawl on and then take them out of the fire. That's That's kind of, that's God, you know, with us being the little ants in the fire. That was as close as anybody really came to trying to explain why we're here. I mean, when you think about the doctrinal bankruptcy that exists in the rest of the, even the Christian world, let alone people who don't even understand about Jesus Christ, we are so blessed to have this. Let us not fail to use this. Frankly, I think the plan of salvation is one of the best parenting tools on the planet. So use it liberally. And if you don't feel like you know it well enough to teach it, 
Look it up. We have so many amazing resources now in our gospel library and all over our conference talks. There's so many people who've taught these things and start studying, you know, as we always say, learn, then teach. And then there's also the question of like, how much do we understand the plan? Like, okay, we've kind of talked about that. I'm sorry if I'm overlapping a little bit, but also do we believe the plan? Okay, there's the next step. Do we believe it? How converted are we to the plan? We might know the answers. We might be able to raise our hands and fill in all the parts of the chart of the plan of salvation, but how much do we truly own that belief? Have we practiced believing in it and sought a confirmation of this wonderful information so that we can guide our lives by it? Because you know, just kind of thinking that like, yeah, Christ can save me from my sins, but you know, I'm not that bad. And I don't think it's really necessary or whatever, you know, can sabotage the whole thing. So are are we believing that it is necessary for us to repent, that this is the great opportunity of mortal life, that we can overcome the appetites of the flesh by yielding to the spirit and committing ourselves to that path of sanctification so that we can be purified through Christ? So believing the plan, how much do our children believe it? Again, they may know the answers, but does it affect their lives? Or do they think it's, you know, repentance is for later and they delay that or they think, you know, they're they're not really convinced that sin is destructive. I mean, we have to kind of look at our kids and ask them questions that, you know, what is it that's motivating this behavior if they're rebellious? You know, what's going on? I think I've mentioned before, but many times I'll talk to parents, or over the years I have, and, and don't get me wrong, I've talked to a lot of wonderful parents who do a lot of great gospel teaching. But sometimes even good parents will say, well, you know, we haven't really talked about that, or I haven't asked them what their thinking is about why their behavior was this way or why they chose to act out in a certain way. And that's a really important part of being able to teach the plan is that we talk with our children openly about all these things. And we ask them not in in an interrogating way, but in a loving way, we ask what their thoughts are and what their understanding is so that we can help to persuade them to believe. We can teach and testify and persuade them to believe. Then, obviously, Proverbs 9, 10 gives us a pretty good indication of why some people repent. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Now, fear, in my opinion, in this setting does not mean that we are terrified of God. I don't think that's at all what it means. I think it means that we revere him, that we recognize his great power and might and our great indebtedness to him. Remember King Benjamin's great speech about, are we not all beggars because of all that God has done for us, all that the Savior has done for us? Do we not Do we not feel that reverence and awe that is appropriate in in our understanding of deity? We have so many examples, right? You know, Moses, who passes out for hours after being in the presence of God, and then says what? For this cause, I know that man is nothing, which thing I had never before supposed. We don't have to be in his presence to believe the words of the prophet, that God is great and so perfect and above us in glory that that we should have this reverence for him, this fear to offend him, that we should recognize the day will come, we will stand in his presence, and our sins will be visible to everybody if they have not been repented of. They'll be shouted from the housetops. They'll be, you know, they'll open the book of life, and it'll basically be on the big screen for people to see what kind of choices we made. And if we made good choices, that's what they'll see. But if we didn't repent of our bad decisions, of our rebellion, of our of our acts of sin, then that will be on view for everybody. Does that not fill us with a desire to repent? I hope it will. Again, it's not about being terrified of the Lord. It's about recognizing how wonderful and great he is and the options that he gives us to become worthy of his presence, the great opportunities that come through his great plan, the plan of happiness, the plan of mercy, you know, I, I'm not making a comprehensive list here. I hope you'll understand. These are just a few things that I, I was thinking about and talking with Chris about, that things that get in the way of repentance. Certainly, there may be something different for you that you've struggled with in your life or that you've seen your children or loved ones struggle with. And I hope that this will be an opportunity to look at that and say, what prevents us from falling into the trap of the children of Israel, where with all the prophets talking to them, they still end up destroyed as a nation scattered amongst the the nations of the world. Now, terrible outcomes, horrible endings 
to, to this nation that could have been a Zion nation because they would not repent. This, of course, happens also at the end of the Book of Mormon. We see that that terrible story also where they had so much light. They had the visitation of the Savior. They had almost 400 years of peace, and then they descend into madness. We see it in the brief record of the Jaredites in the Book of Ether. The same thing, a people led by God to a promised land who have so much light, have prophets amongst them, and then turn away and are destroyed. Like, does that message get through to us? Are, are we are we finally going to see that like it doesn't it doesn't work to turn away from the truth and the light? Nothing good comes from that. So you know, in the Book of Mormon, what was it that prevented them from from repenting? And we know we we have the pride cycle in the Book of Mormon, right? Love the speech by Ezra Taft Benson. Many of of us love that speech. Beware of pride. That. President Benson delivered, actually, I think it was Gordon B. Hinckley, one of the counselors who who actually read the speech, but written by the prophet of the day, Ezra Taft Benson, landmark speech. Go review it. Talk to your loved ones about this speech and see how it interferes with our repenting. Pride is a deadly sin. Just a couple of lines from that speech that President Benson gave us. Think of what pride has cost us in the past and what it is now costing us in our own lives, our families, and the church. How often does pride get in the way of repentance? We don't want to be wrong. Or maybe we think the other person is wrong too, so we don't want to be the first one to change or repent or say we're sorry. Is is that getting in the way of our healing relationships, of our healing ourselves from sin, or preventing ourselves from improvement and change? How sad would that be? Or the image consciousness that can be so much a part of our culture where we want to look good. So we, we get caught up in pride about, you know, what our image seems to be as opposed to who we truly are going on with President Benson's speech. Think of the repentance that could take place with lives changed, marriages preserved, and homes strengthened if pride did not keep us from confessing our sins and forsaking them. I gotta read that one again. Think of the repentance that could take place with lives changed, marriages preserved, and homes strengthened if pride did not keep us from confessing our sins and forsaking them. Talked a lot in the past about how dangerous it is to cover our sins because that is, again, pride trying to preserve an image, and we even lie to ourselves when we do it, thinking that it's okay for me to hide that sin. And somehow it won't come forth in the resurrection or the day of judgment. It won't come forth. Yes, it will. It's written in the Lamb's Book of Life. But repentance can remove it through the grace of Christ. But let us not get caught in pride again in counseling. So tragic to see how many people, let me talk about marriage for a minute, who I'll have a partner come to me who's married a spouse, and in the course of our work together, I find that they have really begged their their spouse to repent. They have begged their husband or wife to repent, maybe not in those words. They're not trying to be jerks or self-righteous or anything. <laughs> maybe they're just saying it plainly because it is a need. Repent of a sin. Repent of, a, of a, an addiction. Repent of greed or selfishness or unrighteous dominion, and they have begged their partner to make these changes so that the marriage could be preserved, so that the family could remain intact, the children could be blessed, that the whole world could be blessed by another strong family that lives their lives in the light of the Lord and with a desire to please Him and have the Spirit in their homes and in their hearts. But it doesn't happen because of pride. They they don't want to be wrong. They They think they're they're right about things, or they think they don't need to change. They're good enough. You know, can we read the scriptures together? No, no, we don't need to do that. Or, you know, we don't need to pray. That's, we don't, you know, we're fine. We're paying our tithing, whatever, as if that's enough. Remember, we not long ago read the story of Saul, where Saul thinks he can negotiate with the Lord. And Samuel tells him to obey is better than sacrifice. Like, don't try to bargain with me. Don't negotiate the terms and say, well, I'll make extra contributions or I'll take all these callings. 
as long as I don't have to repent of this or change this in my life. That's That never works. That never works with the Lord. The terms are non-negotiable. If we want clean hands and a pure heart, we do it the Lord's way, and we we humble ourselves and admit when we are out of line. We soften our hearts. We, we loosen our stiff necks. You know, we talk so much about the stiff neckedness of, of these people that I've talked about in the Book of Mormon or the Old Testament. Well, at any time of the world where people have failed to repent because they were too proud. Let us not fall into that trap. And if we have fallen into it, let us quickly get out of it. The Savior can help us repent of that pride and then move on to repent of whatever else is halting our progression toward glory. Let's not diminish the power of the adversary. I'm going to read some verses from chapter 28 of 2 Nephi, and many of you will remember this. So many warnings that apply to us in our day. This is starting with verse 7. And this is speaking of, of the last days. Yea, and there shall be many which shall say, Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die, and it shall be well with us. Aren't we hearing this all the time now in our society? And we even hear it in some churches. I mean, not in our church, if we're teaching the gospel correctly, and certainly not from our leaders. But but don't we hear this? You know, it's okay. God is so kind. He's going to forgive everything. Don't worry. You know, it's all okay. Eat, eat drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die, and it shall be well with us. In other words, there won't really be a, a day of accountability. And there shall also be many which shall say, eat, drink, and be merry. Nevertheless, fear God. But then look at how they see God. He will justify in committing a little sin, yea, lie a little, take the advantage of one because of his words, dig a pit for thy neighbor. There's no harm in this. And do all these things for tomorrow we die. And if it so be that we are guilty, God will beat us with a few stripes. And at last we shall be saved in the kingdom of God. In other words, you know, care about God a little. So this is this could really apply to some of us churchgoers that that feel like we're faithful members of the church. But are we are we kind of equivocating on some of this stuff and saying, well, we can do a little of these things. We don't have to be completely committed to righteousness. We can we can play around a little bit with, with some of the commandments or play fast and loose or, or be selective about the commandments. Maybe maybe it doesn't matter how I wear my garments. Maybe it doesn't matter what movies or literature or stuff I let in my head. Maybe it doesn't matter about being observant on the Sabbath day and worshipful on the Sabbath day. Maybe it doesn't matter if I you know, all these things, cheat a little bit in business. You know, how many people over the years have you heard talk about, I hope not too many, but some will say, you know, church is church and business is business. I know of people who've said that and they meant it. They thought that they could cheat a little or lie a little or take advantage of, of someone in business because business was business and church was church. So, and then, and then what happens? Worst case, they're saying God will beat us with a few stripes, but then we'll go to the kingdom. But that's not what happens. Because those who go to hell don't come out and get resurrected into a celestial kingdom. That that doesn't happen. And that is a huge false idea that I can fail to repent, that I can I can then, you know, go and be beaten with a few stripes in hell of the things that I didn't repent of, but then I can be celestial. No. This life is the time for men to prepare to meet God. Have we not heard this repeated so many times? Let's just read that again. It's in Alma 34 in one of the great sermons of Amalek. Verse 31. Yea, I would that ye would come forth and harden not your hearts any longer. For behold, now is the time in the day of your salvation. And therefore, if ye will repent and harden not your hearts, immediately shall the great plan of redemption be brought about unto you. For behold, this life. This is classic Alma 34, 32, right? This life is the time for men to prepare to meet God. Yea, behold the day of this life is the day for men to perform their labors. And now, as I have said unto you before, as ye have had so many witnesses, therefore I beseech of you that ye do not procrastinate the day of your repentance until the end. For after this day of life, which is given us to prepare for eternity, that's what this life is, it's to prepare for eternity. Behold, if we do not improve our time while in this life, then cometh the night of darkness, wherein there can be no labor performed. You cannot say when you're brought to the awful crisis that I will repent, that I will return to my God. Nay, ye cannot say this. For that same spirit which doth possess your bodies at the time that ye go out of this life, that same spirit will have power to possess your body in that eternal world. Now, that doesn't mean, sometimes people use that to say that, you know, if we have 
different identities or whatever, that that's going to continue. No, it will not. What it's talking about is, is are we oriented towards repentance or are we rebellious against the idea of repenting? That's the spirit he's talking about. Do we have a spirit of procrastination or a spirit of uh, desire to commit to change, to seek sanctification? Last verse 35, for behold, if ye have procrastinated the day of your repentance, even unto death, behold, ye have become subjected to the spirit of the devil. That's the spirit he's talking about, the spirit that pulls us away from Christ. And he doth seal you his. Therefore, the spirit of the Lord hath withdrawn from you and hath no place in you. And the devil hath all power of you. And this is the final state of the wicked. So anyway, that's the spirit he's talking about. Do we have a spirit that is moving toward more holiness or that is procrastinating? and not taking it seriously, thinking we'll be beaten with a few stripes and then be saved. Remember that Joseph Smith said that reincarnation was the doctrine of the devil. And why? Because it didn't take seriously this mortal life to prepare. Because what's the idea of reincarnation? That if, I, if I'm if i not a good person in this life, I might come back as a lesser creature. So maybe I'll be a cockroach for a while. But if I'm a good cockroach, then I get another chance. And eventually I can become, you know, worthy of nirvana or whatever. That's That's the doctrine of the devil. These endless chances, no. That's procrastination. This life is the time for men to prepare to meet God. So we really need to be cautious. Now, we also want to say that God, in his perfect knowledge, knows when people have had a complete opportunity and when they have not. So please do not worry about that. For our loved ones to think that, like, okay, did they have a complete chance to accept or reject the gospel of Jesus Christ? God will get that exactly right. He knows our hearts, our minds. He knows everything. He knows when people have been blinded or hurt or damaged in some way that they don't have full responsibility, and he will make that completely right so that every person will have a chance to come to Christ and be saved by expressing the honest desires of their heart with clear vision of what that choice is. If most of us don't get that chance in this life or in this planet, then I don't understand the plan. So, you know, sometimes I've been asked by clients about a spouse, and maybe maybe they've had an abusive husband or wife, and they might say, you know, is my husband capable of being good, or is there something seriously wrong so that, you know, they really aren't capable of, of repenting and becoming a good husband or a good wife? And my answer is always the same. I say, well... That's above my pay grade. I do not have omniscience. So I cannot and would not try to make a final judgment on any individual about, oh, yes, they had a perfect chance and they didn't repent. Now they're in trouble. Or yes or no, they, they didn't have that chance. I don't, I can't know that. And I trust that God does. So I don't try to make that judgment. On the other hand, I will add that if everybody who qualifies, let's say, for a diagnostic condition, you know, a mental health diagnosis, if that renders them not responsible for their behavior in this life, then the plan is a bust because all of us qualify for some kind of mental health diagnosis. <laughs> Let's not kid ourselves. <laughs> I mean, everybody seems to be depressed and anxious these days, which I don't think is a good thing. And I think we can learn some things that can help us rise above that. But it's part of this life. And sometimes we feel depressed and anxious and we could qualify for a diagnosis. And then what does that mean? I'm not responsible for the use of my agency? No, I don't believe that. I don't believe that that something as simple as a diagnosis is going to get me off the hook in the judgment day. So I'm going to say like, I don't know about every individual, but God does. And he will make that judgment perfectly with justice and with mercy. And it will be just right. I'm going to go back to 2 Nephi 28 for a minute because I think this is so important. And it's so, we have such amazing information that can help us understand the plan better and hopefully improve our time on this planet so that we don't procrastinate the day of our repentance until too late. Going on, this is 2 Nephi 28, but I'm going to jump to verse 12. Because of pride, we just talked about that, and because of false teachers and false doctrine, which we have to be really careful of in the church, because sometimes we have some favorite false doctrines, like we shouldn't judge, you know. <laughs> that's, that's one of our favorite false doctrines. It's a false doctrine. It is given unto us to judge. Now, I just talked about not making final judgment. That's way above any of our pay grades. But we do need to make intermediate judgments or we can't use our agency correctly. Check out again Moroni 7, a letter from Mormon to his son Moroni that says, speaking for the Lord, I give it unto you to judge. And the way is as plain that you may know good from evil as the daylight is from the dark night. I'm giving you the light of Christ. I give you prophets. I give you commandments. You can make judgments about good from evil. So don't judge incorrectly. Don't judge that which is good and of God to be of the devil or vice versa. And we are seeing this as Isaiah prophesied. 
every day that good is called evil and evil is called good. That is incorrect judgment. And that is something that is condemned by the Lord. But we are to make correct judgment, not to just fail to judge. That would be a disaster. So we have to watch these false doctrines that we sometimes hear or perpetuate. Their churches have become corrupted and their churches are lifted up because of pride. They are puffed up. They rob the poor. I'm going to jump a little bit again. Persecute the meek. Verse 14, they wear stiff necks and high heads. Yea, and because of pride, and look how often we're warned about pride, and wickedness and abominations and whoredoms, they have all gone astray, save it be a few who are the humble followers of Christ. This is our day, brothers and sisters. Nevertheless, they are led that in many instances they do err because they are taught by the precepts of men. We have a media right now, and we have, of course, the internet and worldwide communication in an instant. The precepts of men have really, really been loud, and so many of them have been false. Of course, anytime they disagree with the gospel of Jesus Christ, they're false. And yet our children are hearing them. And if we don't help them make correct judgments about these precepts of men, or as we have so often said, the philosophies of men mingled with scripture, which we see a lot now when we talk about, and we discussed this just recently about how people mistake the love of God for tolerance of sin. And that is a false idea. It's a philosophy of men mingled with scripture. They try to use scripture to say that God, because he's so loving and forgiving, is okay with sin that's unrepented. He cannot be. That would violate the laws of the universe. And God is in harmony with all universal laws, which is why he's God. And as we know from Alma 42, mercy cannot rob justice. Or God would cease to be God if he didn't abide by those universal truths. He himself would lose his position as deity, which he never will do. So so let us not be deceived by these precepts of men. But we need to talk to our children and we need to check ourselves and, and go back to Scripture and the words of the prophets and not fall for false doctrines that are taught that have a semblance of scriptural talk or language, or or gospel talk or language, but are not consistent with basic gospel principles. You know, we've talked about these things, right? Again, and we will continue to do it. I hope it helps. Oh, the wise and learned and the rich that are puffed up in the pride of their hearts. There it is again, pride. And all those who preach false doctrines and who commit whoredoms and pervert the right way of the Lord. Woe, woe, woe be unto them. Three woes saith the Lord God Almighty, for they shall be thrust down to hell. Woe unto them that turn aside the just for a thing of naught, and revile against that which is good, and say it is of no worth. Again, are we not seeing that? Religion is under attack in general. Christians are under attack. In many instances, you know, the worship of God, the desire to have prayer, so many things have been under attack by people who have listened to the adversary. For the day shall come that the Lord God will speedily visit the inhabitants of the earth. And in that day that they are fully ripe in iniquity, they shall perish. But behold, if the inhabitants of the earth shall repent of their wickedness and abominations, they shall not be destroyed, saith the Lord of hosts. So always the invitation is to repent. That is the message. And then he talks about how the kingdom of the devil must shake and that the great and abominable church will fall. But in verse 20, still 2 Nephi 28, For behold, at that day shall he, meaning the devil, rage in the hearts of the children of men. Boy, are we seeing this. And stir them up to anger against that which is good. And that can happen in our own relationships, in our own families, in our marriages, in our relationships with our children, with our neighbors, with our church. People can get angry at the church because they fail to to trust God so they get they get angry because of the precepts of men that tell them that the, the standards of the church are antiquated it doesn't matter anymore those are just old men and their old ideas and it will all change no it doesn't same yesterday today and forever when it comes to basic principles of the gospel and others this is a powerful warning others will he pacify and lull them away into carnal security that they will say, all is well in Zion. Or maybe they'll just say, all is well with me. I'm fine. I'm, I'm doing fine. 
And and that's the part of Harold B. Lee's statement where maybe we need to have a little affliction for the comfortable, for those who think that they're fine, that they're done, that they're finished. Because when you're finished changing, you're finished. And thus the devil cheateth their souls and leadeth them away carefully down to hell. And behold, others he flattereth away. Remember how many times in the Book of Mormon it warns against flattering words. And telleth them there is no hell. And he saith unto them, I am no devil, for there is none. You know, I read a book years ago in Vegas. I mean, we're talking <laughs> decades ago. Somebody brought me a book that was very popular. I think at the time it was called Return to Love and said, what do you think of this book? And I, you know, I don't know. I had time for some reason. I don't know how I had the time, but I read the book in order to give an informed answer or at least an informed opinion. And there were a lot of good, you know, sort of ideas in there, some positive things about love and goodness and whatever. But there was a section in that book that talked about the fact that there was no devil, that it was just people's idea and Anyway, I remembered right out of 2 Nephi 28 that people would say there is no devil. And that just, I was like, no, no, any book that contains that idea is dangerous. That is coming straight from Satan to try to say he doesn't even exist. So don't even worry about it. And, you know, some people say that good and bad are the same. It's just the way you see it. Well, no, that is a doctrine of the devil. And he's just been talking about that here. Such powerful prophecy. In that day, I am no devil, for there is none. And thus he whispereth in their ears until he grasps them with his awful chains from whence there is no deliverance. They are grasped with death and hell. And death and hell and the devil and all that have been seized therewith must stand before the throne of God and be judged according to their works. From whence they must go into the place prepared for them, even a lake of fire and brimstone, which is endless torment. Again, we talked about this in the DNC. Section 19, endless torment here does not mean it will last forever. So check section 19 of the DNC if you want to have an explanation of that or go back to the podcast from last year for section 19. Actually, I don't think I covered section 19. I didn't start the podcast that early, but I talked about it in the podcast last year. And go back and read that part in section 19 that says endless means it comes from the endless one who is God, not that it lasts forever. Verse 24, therefore, woe be unto him that is at ease in Zion. Now, again, there's a balance, comfort for the afflicted. We should not go so far as to let our concern turn into despair, personal despair or despair about the future of the plan. God is mighty. He has all power and the Savior is mighty to save. We can be saved from, not in, our sins. We can be saved and we should have that trust and hope in Christ and be comforted if we if we don't think we're good enough. That's that's not giving Christ credit for who he is. It's not giving our Father credit for the beauty and mercy of his plan and the wonder of his creation, which is us, his children, and the potential that is in us. If we care, if we desire, we can be saved and exalted because we keep trying that constant state of, of repentance, which is not anxiety and is not fear, but it is reverence for God and a desire to continue to become more like him. Woe be unto him that crieth all is well. Yea, woe be unto him that hearkeneth unto the precepts of men. There it is again, the philosophies of men, and denieth the power of God and the gift of the Holy Ghost. Woe be unto him that saith, we have received and we need no more. We're not finished, brothers and sisters. We're not finished. And in fine, woe unto all those who tremble and are angry because of the truth of God. Have we not seen that? Are we not seeing it every day? People who are angry, I mean, it's just the same old lame and lemuel thing recycled, where the wicked taketh the truth to be hard, for it cutteth them to the very center. It's the same thing. And now there are many wicked people who are promoting wicked ideas, and they are angry at the word of God. They're really, really angry and even violent against the truth. For behold, he that is built upon the rock receiveth it with gladness. And he that is built upon a sandy foundation trembleth lest he shall fall. Woe be unto him that shall say we have received the word of God and we need no more of the word of God for we have enough. For behold, thus saith the Lord, I will give unto the children of men line upon line, precept upon precept, here a little, there a little, and blessed 
are those who hearken unto my precepts, not the precepts of men, my precepts, and lend an ear unto my counsel, for they shall learn wisdom. For unto him that receiveth, I will give more. What a blessing. That's section 50, right? He that receiveth light and continueth in God receiveth more light, and that light groweth brighter and brighter until the perfect day. Same message right here. Unto him that receiveth, I will give more. And from them that shall say, we have enough, from them shall be taken away even that which they have. Cursed is he that putteth his trust in man. So many loud voices right now in the world. And they're omnipresent, really, with the internet and the way our media is. Don't listen to the philosophies of men, the precepts of men. Save their precepts shall be given by the power of the Holy Ghost, which means they would line up with the teachings of our prophets, the teachings of our scriptures. I've got to, I've got to wrap it up there, but boy, we could, we could just read the whole Book of Mormon and we would get a great message on repentance. Just a couple of other thoughts here. The prophet Joseph Smith taught, the nearer a person approaches the Lord, a greater power will be manifested by the adversary to prevent the accomplishment of his purposes. I'm going to read it again. The nearer a person approaches the Lord, a greater power will be manifested by the adversary to prevent the accomplishment of his purposes. And we saw this again in the Old Testament vividly, right? Saul had such great potential and starts out humble and obedient. And then how great is his fall? Satan comes after him and he succumbs. David, even more potential, even more chance to be I mean, it starts out in his youth as such a faithful, believing child of God, a son of God who is anointed to be king and is willing to wait for the timing of the Lord and then gets caught by pride that Satan throws some things at him and he succumbs. The same with Solomon, the same with the entire nations of northern and southern Israel, the northern and southern kingdoms. They had such potential although they, frankly, they never really approached God that closely. So sorry, that's not the best example. <laughs> but, but certainly Saul, David, and Solomon are great examples of that. Sad, tragic, cautionary tale examples, how the adversary can ramp up when we are approaching God. Do not let that happen. And what makes the difference? Humility. Because that's what killed Saul was pride. Same with David, same with Solomon, and same with so many others. People who, who think that they are above falling, that they, that they're already, you know, good enough. And they are so comfortable in their goodness that they, then when the adversary pulls his tricks, they crash. A statement about procrastination that I really like by Joseph Fielding Smith. Chris found this one. Procrastination as it is applied to gospel principles is the thief of eternal life. Procrastination as it is applied to gospel principles is the thief of eternal life. Joseph Fielding Smith We've talked a lot about, about this. I want to just mention another great statement by Joseph F. Smith, the father of the prophet Joseph Fielding. There are at least three dangers. Now, this isn't comprehensive. He says there are at least, right? So there could be more, but there are at least three dangers that threaten the church within. So these are active members he's talking about. That's us. Flattery of prominent men in the world. We talked about flattery a little bit. How dangerous is flattery that tells us that we're good enough? Again, it plays on our pride. It generates pride. It, it kills our humility. False educational ideas. This is Joseph F. Smith, another tremendous prophet who could see afar off. False educational ideas, you think? And sexual impurity. Again, the sin next to murder, which is so flagrant and so brazen in our world that we're acting like it doesn't matter. We have people telling us that, you know, masturbation is not a sin, that it's not that big a deal to look at porn, that, you know, sexual purity is, is overrated. Really? Really? What a great place that, this, that Satan enters and, and plays on our appetites, where, where people indulge and will not Turn to the Lord, seek the spirit and the power therein in order to overcome the flesh and the appetites of the flesh to be clean, to be pure. And remember, marriage is not, you know, the end all. I mean, we can still be unchaste in our marriages if we are following the lusts of our flesh and that our idea about sexual activity has to do with just fulfilling our appetites rather than, than bonding with our spouse 
and at the right time bringing forth children and recognizing how sacred these things are and what a great blessing it is that this can allow a husband and wife to become closer and and more connected to each other in in every way, not just physically, but emotionally and spiritually, if we are doing it in the Lord's way, with chastity, which in marriage doesn't mean that we are foregoing sexual intimacy. It just means that we are doing it with with an eye single to the purposes of this wonderful gift of physical intimacy, which is, as I said, for the purpose of bonding a man and a woman in marriage and bringing forth children at the right time. And this great gift, it has a great power attached and must be handled in the Lord's way, which is with love and kindness, tenderness and respect, never selfishness or or with an eye of lust, but an eye of love. And if we don't know the difference, look it up, study it, get help. Just going to mention one more thing, which is that we have so much of a shift lately in some circles that are kind of more, again, false educational ideas about rejecting savior theology. And these words are even used by some of the advocates. Ibram X. Kendi talks about this stuff very openly. His parents were both ministers of a kind. They were also Black Panthers. But he talks about that savior theology is basically racist somehow. Don't ask me how. But anyway, this idea that telling people that they need to individually repent and come to Christ and be saved is is a passe idea that that's a, that's a patriarchal idea that you shouldn't tell people that they need to change. You shouldn't tell people that they're a fallen people and that through Christ they can be changed and through repentance they can come forth and become more like God and more like his son. But instead, and remember, that's the inside-out change that we've talked about, that that's how God works from the inside out, not from the outside in. But he, in many of his writings and speaking, is talking about liberation theology, which is from the outside in, meaning that forget this need to repent. Instead, let's just try to change our government so that it will take care of the oppressed and, and create an equal outcomes you know, make everybody equal in in belongings or property or or in, whatever. And anyway, this that's an outside in idea, liberation theology that rejects the idea that we need to come to Christ humbly and change ourselves and be saved, and that Christ is the one who, when He comes in His glory, will put an end to injustice. That while we should act justly and try to do what we can to help the poor or help the oppressed, certainly that is loving our neighbor. That we should recognize that. And those things will not completely end until Christ comes. So recognizing that those philosophies of men, again, mingled with scripture, because they take that idea of helping the oppressed or helping the poor, and they turn that into the chief idea of the gospel or their religious message, which is a liberation theology, not a savior theology, where Christ is our savior, and he can save us upon conditions of our repentance which he will help us with. Brothers and sisters, took a lot longer than I was going to. (laughs) But let us celebrate that we understand that Christ is our Savior. And through repentance, through continued change, through becoming free of sin and then increasingly holy, we can qualify for the kingdom of God. We can build Zion now. We can choose glory in our lives every day. Become a more Zion people. Thanks to my husband, Chris Anderson, and to Doug Larson of Point Digital. Take care.